Well, welcome to Grace this morning. We are glad that you're here. Uh, we, this is a busy, busy time in our, uh, in our church right now. You know, it's spring. Spring's coming. We're excited for that. But, uh, but last week, as AJ was talking about, we just had our, our, our men's event last Sunday night and um, had a bunch of guys there. There's something about going to a church thing where there's just dudes and uh, watching other dudes get trucked across the room by other dudes. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, <laughs> it was entertaining, that's for sure. So just fun stuff. But, um, but yeah, we had, a, we had a great time with that. Uh, this week, we're going to wrap up our series on men, our Man Up series. And then next week, we're starting a brand new series. Also, the bad news is with next week is that it's time change, uh, meaning we lose an hour. How many of you guys look forward to that every year? What? What's wrong with you people? Okay. I don't. Okay. I don't like losing an hour of sleep. I like gaining the hour of sleep. We should just... You know, gain an hour, that probably messed something up. But uh, anyway, um, so we got that coming up next week. What we want to do as a staff is we want to bribe you guys, second service people, people who value your sleep and value your time home in the mornings. We're going to bribe you to come to first service next week. All right, so double whammy there. Um, so next week we're going to have, uh, we're going to have donut holes provided by IGA. They're going to help us out, but we'll have donut holes for our first service people. So just want to throw that out there, all right? If that's something that you're like, oh, you know, maybe that'll get a few of you to go because we think second service is going to be pretty full. So anyway, because all the first service people are going to take their hour. All right, but, uh, but just throwing that out there. Okay, if that's you, yeah, donut holes, IGA, pretty good. Second, first service next week. Um, also next week, we are having a baptism all right, in our services. By the way, let me just throw this out there. Uh, if you have not been baptized after you started your relationship with Jesus, so that excludes being baptized as a kid or being baptized as a baby, all right, sprinkled, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you have not been baptized after you started a relationship with God, the Bible tells us super clear that you should be baptized, okay? And that's something that you should do. Uh, we want to give you that opportunity to take that uh, to take that chance and, and take that step in your next, uh, take that next step in your faith uh, to be baptized. We're doing baptisms next week during our services. If that's something that you're interested in, after the service, stop by the information center and uh, just give them your name. We'll contact you. We want to. We'll walk through some stuff with you and help answer any questions that you might have. Uh, if uh, if you forget to do that after the service, just call in. Okay, simple as that, and we'll we'll get a hold of you. So we want uh, we want to challenge you with that and. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's on you. So, all right, today we're going to wrap up our series called Man Up. And what we've been talking about is what the heck in God's eyes, all right, does a man look like? Like, what does it mean to be a man? All right, remember, God's the one who created men. And so God's the one who gets to define men and define how men should act. And uh, we, we've talked about how God has designed men and women differently, okay? We understand that. We get that, right? We are different. We are good at different things. We each have our strengths in different areas. Um, we have complete equal worth, right? Cannot stress this enough. We have complete equal worth. Men and women have complete equal value that God places on us, but we are different, and that's not a bad thing, okay? That's, God has designed it that way. And so women, what I want to do is I want to give you the same challenge that I gave you guys last week, and that is this, as we go through this and we wrap this up today, um, God gives us the examples of men in this Bible, okay, in this book, not just for men, right? He gives this, he gives us examples of how men should act 
for both men and women, right? The Bible's written to both men and women equally. And so that includes you. Like, like women, you are a part of this. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to be or not, it doesn't really matter. All right, you are a part of this. As our mothers, as our sisters, as our daughters, as those of you who are a part of this church family, all right, you're, you're in this. And so what I just want to remind you is that as a woman, all right, it is good for you to know what a man should look like in God's eyes. Right, it's good for you. Right, you should know. Uh, you, you should want to know. And so what I want to ask from you t- today is, uh, is biblically, and that's a key, all right, very important word there. Biblically, I want you uh, to, to really have high expectations for men in your life. Right? You should have a high expectation for the men in your life, not just whatever you, you know, come up with. No, you should always be able to tie it back to God. Biblically, you need to have high expectations for the men in your life. Now, men, we totally understand that there's all kinds of different men in here. Right? We're into different things. We do different things. Um, we're, we're, you know, the men in here, we are, we're different. Some of you guys, you're all into working out. You go to the gym every day. Maybe you're into CrossFit or whatever it might be, and others of Others of us, all right, we've never touched, we haven't touched a weight since college, okay? Um, some of you guys, uh, you wear Carhartts and boots all day. Others of you, you wear V-necks and Crocs, okay? That's like, that's a thing, all right? Uh, we eat differently, okay? Some of you guys, you got your low-carb, you know, sugar-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, taste-free salads, okay? <laughs> Others of us, you know, we eat nachos and wings for breakfast sometimes, um, we, we work differently, right? Some of us, we work hard in the shop when we get home from work and we're doing whatever, you know, in the garage or whatever. You know, some of you guys, you, you work hard on your couch when you're trying to build your, your social media empire, maybe, and trying to get those likes. Uh, we smell differently. Some people smell like engine oil, right? Some people, some of you guys, you smell like essential oils, okay? And that's cool. Um, in our office, and I believe so, actually, I had a little pushback from AJ, but, uh, but in our office, all right, there's two of us guys out of the three of us, me, Blaine, and AJ, that uh, two of us have essential oils in our offices, um, and I'm not trying to name names or anything, but uh, I'm not one of them, okay? <laughs> so let me throw that out there. I might have to verify that with Blaine. Even Blaine's giving me the look. So um, the, uh, some of us, we drive four by four big trucks, right, with the big old mud tires, and, you know, when you press on the gas, you got the black smoke coming out, you know, and people hate you and they roll your eyes at you as you zip down the road. Others of you, um, you drive the Prius, okay? So there's different guys in here. We all do different things and it doesn't really matter like what we're into. It doesn't really matter what's our thing, all right? All of us as men, we should all be asking the same question and that is, what does, it, what does a man look like, biblically speaking? Like in God's eyes, All right, what does a man look like? And culture and God gives us two very, very, very different answers. And so today we're going to wrap up our series with one final example that we find from the Old Testament about what a man looks like. And so let me just kind of straight up throw it, you know, kind of tell you what we're going to do. First, I want to give you some background. I want to try to connect the dots through the stories that we've talked about maybe since, kind of since like, uh, since, since January, um, and then I just want to tell you a quick story, and we'll go through that story, and we're going we're gonna to find out kind of what God has for us through that, especially for us men. Okay, so you guys good with that? Let me connect the dots. 
Okay, all right, yeah, there we go. Some, some people are just like, what is going on here? All right. Anyway, so Israel, all right, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, okay? We, we see that in the Old Testament. Then God raises up this dude named Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt, all right? We see that in the book of Exodus, and right at the beginning of the Bible. And w- Moses leads them all the way to this land that's called the Promised Land, all right? It's a strip of land that God has promised them, and God had promised Abraham for his descendants that he was going to give to them. And it's super interesting because it's the same, like, strip of land that Israel occupi- occupies today, right? Isn't that weird? 4,000 years later, the Jews are still there, okay? Just, it's a God thing. And so um, God has given them this promised land. And so they move in. They conquer the land with Joshua. And for the first 300 years, things are not good. All right, the first 300 years that they're in this land, things are not good. I mean, they're in this, this cycle of following God, following fake gods, following God, following fake gods, following God, following fake gods, over and over and over again. And it's this period called the Judges period. And at the end of this period is where we find the, the story of Ruth that we talked about a few weeks ago. Well, maybe even during Ruth's lifetime, at the end of this period, at the end of this 300-year period, the, um, the Israelites, they come together and they demand a king from God. And so God gives them this guy named Saul, and then after a little while, God <coughs> rejects Saul, and God gives him a king named David, and then David's king for a while, and then his son Solomon becomes king, and then Solomon's son becomes king. We looked at David and Solomon last week at the end of David's life. Uh, but Solomon, when his son becomes king, we see that the kingdom splits, almost like how the United States almost split, you know, back in the 1850s or whenever that was with the Civil War, right? They split in the north and south. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, all right? And the northern kingdom did not have one single good king, okay? All the kings were bad. They were led by, you know, bad, by bad kings. And, and they lasted for about 200 years, like the whole kingdom of the north. They lasted on their own for about 200 years until they were defeated and destroyed by, this, by the first world empire, which was called the Assyrian Empire, okay? Maybe you learned that in, you know, history class back in like eighth grade or something. I don't know. But uh, the Assyrian Empire, they came in and they conquered all of, all of the northern kingdom, Israel. Now, the southern kingdom, they... they uh, came up with a name called Judah, and they were in the south. About half of their kings were good, half of their kings were bad. They kind of dabbled with, with doing the right thing, and then, but then they would do the wrong thing. And they lasted a little longer than the, than the northern kingdom Israel. They lasted for about 350 years. And then they got defeated by the second world, major world em, empire, which was the Babylonian empire, okay, who had defeated the Assyrian empire. And so Babylon comes in, and they wipe out Judah in the south. And, and that's in Jerusalem. And when this happens, most of the Jews run, okay, to other neighboring nations. Um, many of the Jews who stayed there were slaughtered, okay, by the Babylonians. And then some of them were actually taken captive by the Babylonians and taken to all different parts of the Babylonian empire. We see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel was one of these Jewish guys that got taken, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are three other guys, okay, that we've heard of maybe in the Bible. All right, those guys um, get taken uh, by the Babylonian Empire. Now, it's interesting because God, right, a question that just kind of pops up usually is like, well, why would God allow this to happen? Like, what's, what's the deal? God, I mean, these are his, like his people. Like, isn't the whole Old Testament like written by the Jews, for the Jews, you know, about the Jews? But God allowed this to happen simply because men failed to act like men. They failed to walk in his ways. The thing that we talked about last week that David was commanding his son Solomon to do. And so... Th- God allows this 
huge, horrible, terrible thing to happen. There are not many Jews left. Jews almost get wiped from the face of the earth almost. And this period lasts for about 70 years, all right? Um, the Babylonian Empire is actually destroyed 70 years later by the, by the third major world empire, which was the, the Persia, all right, the, the Persian Empire. And when Persia takes over, they defeat Babylon. They, they kind of look at their new empire. They're like, wow, we got different people groups placed all around that Babylon had, had scattered all these different people. And so Persia says, hey, why don't you guys all go home to your like, home, ancestral homelands? And so a lot of people ended up, a lot of Jews that were all over the place in the world, they actually decided to go back to, to Judah, go back to Israel and Judah, to those areas. And they go in several waves, but throughout the next few years, they kind of trickle back. And uh, that's where we see the book of Ezra in the, in the Old Testament, because Ezra is one of these dudes that goes back and uh, he helps bring the Jews back to God. And while Ezra is also there in Jerusalem, um, they rebuild the temple and they try to, they try to you know, rebuild their, their, um, their whole situation there. Uh, we know that it's just an interesting fact that Ezra mentions is that when the people, right, there's a few people that are still there in Jerusalem who remember back when they were kids, the old temple that was like at that point 400 years old or so is the temple that Solomon, King's, King David's son, had, had built. Right? He, they remember the temple, and it's like glorious, you know, just huge temple, and this is a special place, holy place on earth. Um, when Ezra goes, that, had, that was destroyed by the Babylonians, but when Ezra goes and he rebuilds their temple, they, these people can remember back from when they were kids, and they, re, and they remember how, how glorious that, that temple was compared to the temple they had now, and Ezra's like, and they're crying. They just cry. Like, it's not like a good state. Like, they got some things going for them. They got a temple, but it's not great. And, and it's just, there's just not many, you know, they're, they're owned by Persia, Persia. The city of Jerusalem is still in ruins. There's not many people left. And 13 years pass by, and then a man named Nehemiah enters the scene. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is this guy named Nehemiah. Um, this is such a good story. It's kind of killing me that I'm going to talk about it or try to get through it just in one day because I want to spend like weeks on all these different aspects of the story. It's just, just so, so good. Um, maybe we'll do that sometime. But uh, what I want to do today is I just want to tell you the story, okay? I just want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you the story. Uh, you guys good with that? Okay, all right, and it's a, it's a good story too. And one thing that I love about the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament is that Nehemiah is writing this first person, all right? He's the one who's, who's writing this down. It's literally like a journal. He's just saying, I don't know, like, this is what happened, okay? And so he just, he just gives it to us straight up, straightforward. And so that's what we're gonna do uh, today. Um, one thing that we see in Nehemiah's life, and he's a Jewish guy, one thing that we see in Nehemiah's life is that before he does anything, he always goes to God. Like, this is like number one step. Before he does anything, before he takes action on anything, he goes to God. So, uh, Nehemiah, he lives in the capital city of Persia, which was this huge city called Susa. Uh, Susa was 750 miles away from Jerusalem. And we find out at the end of chapter 1 of Nehemiah that, that Nehemiah happened to be a cupbearer and advisor to the king. All right, this king, his name was Art, King Artaxerxes. This dude was the um, most, I mean, he was the most powerful man on the planet. 
Okay, so this guy was huge. Uh, he, you know, he could do whatever he wanted. He was the most powerful man on the planet, controlling the most powerful um, empire on the planet. And one day, Nehemiah, he, he's kind of hanging around, and his brother comes by. And his brother had been to Jerusalem recently, and he makes a 750-mile journey to Nehemiah to visit him. And, and Nehemiah asked him straight up, he says, hey, how's Jerusalem doing? All right, how's, how's the city of our ancestors, this, this glorious city? Like, like, what's going on there? Anything, you know, are all, did the Jews all go back? Like, you know, since Persia's taken over, they're allowed to go back now? Like, like is it thriving? Is it flourishing? What, what's going on? And his brother answers him, and he says, no, 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 you don't understand, Nehemiah. Those that have survived there, the, just the few people who are left there, he's like, they're in great trouble. All right, they're disgraced. They're ashamed. They're living in misery. And he's like, and you know what the problem is? The problem is, and this was, this was the worst thing in Nehemiah's eyes, he's saying that their walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and that their gates have been burned. And for us, you know, we hear this and we're like, what's the big deal, okay? Um, you know, why do they need walls and gates? But we got to understand back then walls were everything, Right? I mean, you built a city inside the walls, not on the outside of the walls. Uh, a city that has no walls. I mean, it's a defenseless city. It has no security. Um, it was a pointless city. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus, he's not a Christian or anything. He was a Jew, though. He records for us some of the things that were happening in this day that, that Nehemiah <coughs> was um, in Nehemiah's day. And he, what he described, he says, yeah, during the day in, in the land of Judea, in the land of Judah, outside of Jerusalem, he says raiders from other nations would come and they just overran the, they just overran the country, right? They took whatever they wanted. They stole whatever they wanted. People had nothing of value because it had all been taken. And by night, they wouldn't just take your stuff. They would take people. And so these people, these, these neighboring nations would come in and raid. They would kidnap people's kids. They would take captive women. They'd do all this terrible stuff. And then in the morning, it was normal for Jews to wake up and walk down the road and the roads to be filled with dead bodies from whatever happened the night before. Like just terrible stuff. Like stuff that none of us as Americans living in our comfortable lives have even come close to, to experience it. I mean, that's just, that's just the truth. And so this is what's happening near Jerusalem. This is what's happening in the land of Israel. I mean, it's just a disaster, right? Like this city that God had given his people, this once like glorious place that was filled with joy, laughter, happiness, you know, worship uh, to God was falling apart and there's only a few survivors left. And when Nehemiah hears this, he is absolutely devastated. Like it bothers him. Bothers him a lot. And, he, uh, and, and we see that the first thing that he, had, he does, and it's in chapter one, is that he prays. And he just, he just goes, goes before God. He's like, what's going on here? Right? Like, I thought, you know, we were supposed to go back. Like, you're supposed to bring us back. You, you know, Daniel said that it was only going to last 70 years, and now we're allowed to go back. Like, everything has happened that you said would happen. And now, you know, Jerusalem, they're all in like a terrible, terrible state. And, and so he prays to God and then he goes into depression for, you know, a few weeks, actually a few months. Now, fast forward four months later, Nehemiah tells us that he is in the presence of the king, King Artaxerxes. He's working before the king and the king happens to notice that Nehemiah is not his usual self. Right? Ever know somebody who's not good at hiding their emotions? Maybe your kids, maybe, you know. Okay, never mind. All right, wow. Um, you know, there's people like that. 
whether you want to admit it or not, all right, because nobody is. But uh, anyway, it's like Nehemiah is like one of those people, right? He's, it's hard for him to hide his emotions, all right? He's not good at it. He, and, and it shows on his face that he is depressed about the city. And so the king straight up asks him. The king says, hey, what's wrong with you? You don't look sick, but you're sure acting sick. And this in Nehemiah, in that day and age, this was a huge, huge mistake from Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is, he's going to be, he's freaking out because you were not, it was against the law, right, to, to be unhappy in the presence of the king. Like you were not allowed to show your depression in the presence of the king. That was, you know, you're not allowed, that really reflected on the king's rule. And so no matter what was going on in your life, if you're having the worst day you've ever had in your entire life, if you go before the king, you're happy. Right? At least you act happy. At least you, you, know, you put on that front. And so Nehemiah, you know, so the king asked Nehemiah, he's like, hey, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you happy? And Nehemiah's like, uh, he, he's freaking out. Actually, what Nehemiah says exactly, he says, I was overwhelmed with fear. Right? Because he knows the penalty of being sad in the king's presence is literally death. And he knows this could be the day that he dies because he made this one mistake. And so a lot of times what we do when we make a, stake, a quick mistake is we say a quick prayer. Okay, you ever do that, especially you college kids, like right before you take a test where you haven't studied for and you don't know anything, and you're like, God, help me out here. Then you got to take the test. You ever do that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I did that all the time. Before every test, actually, I'm sure. Um, that's, what the, that's what Nehemiah does. He doesn't, like, tell us what he prayed because there wasn't enough time to, like, pray in big sentences. He was just like, God, help me. He says, I said a quick prayer, and then I answered the king. All right, and so Nehemiah tells him, he says, hey, you know, Jerusalem, um, there's a city, of, it's like the city of my ancestors. He says, hey, the walls are destroyed and the gates are burned, and that's, you know, it's, it's a pointless, useless city, and they have no respect, and, and it's, just, it's just, their people are living in misery. And so the king's like, well, you know, what do you want? Like, what are you asking for? And so the, Nehemiah says, hey, well, you know, he just goes for it. He's like, well, if it pleases you, oh, king, you know, all hail King Artaxerxes, he's like, if it pleases you, um, maybe I could go help them rebuild it throwing it out there. And so the king says, and the queen's sitting there, he says too, they're just like, sure, we don't care. Go for it. All right, so picture this. In a matter of like a minute, Nehemiah goes, oh, I am dead. To now the king's telling him, yeah, why don't you go rebuild that wall in Jerusalem? Why don't you go fix this huge problem that your people have? I mean, it's just night and day. It's completely opposite. And not only does the king give Nehemiah permission to do all this, but he, he gives him letters. He's like, hey, yeah, you want some letters to tell people what you're doing, that, that you're coming from me, that you have permission from me? Yeah, go for it. I'll write the letters. And he says, hey, you need some wood to help you rebuild that wall? Man, I'll let you use my forest. He's like, take, you know, he's got his own forest, which is sweet. He's like, take, take as much wood as you want. You just tell the guys, I said, yeah, whatever Nehemiah wants, you could take. And then he's like, hey, you need, you need protection? All right, that's, that's cool too, all right? Um, yeah, we'll, I'll give you protection. You can, you know, you, he gives them soldiers to, to go with them. And so Nehemiah leaves that day, and he decides to make the 750-mile trip to Jerusalem, a place that he's probably never, ever been before. He's only heard growing up from his parents and his grandparents. And he goes there, and he spends the first three days when he's there just checking things out. Right, he's, just, he's just laying low. He's not doing anything. He's just laying low. In fact, Nehemiah tells us that he goes at, out at night and just, he doesn't want people to be asking questions. He doesn't want people to be coming to him. He's just, he goes out at night. He starts looking around and he, he kind of inspects the wall until he finally reveals himself. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 16 it says, The officials 
He says, they did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the, who would be doing the work. He's like, I haven't told anybody. All right, so here I am. All right, I'm, I'm inspecting the wall. I've been here for a few days. Yeah, everybody's kind of wondering, like, what am I doing? They know I'm from the king, and what, what's going on here? But he's like, but I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't told any of them yet. And so, he says, so I said to them, he says, you see that the trouble we're in? He's like, maybe he's even pointing. He's like, Look around. And he gathers them all together. Look around. Like, you see the holes in the wall? You see all this rubble? All right? Because technically the walls are still there, but they're just in piles of, of rubble. All right? Piles of stones or bricks and whatever, you know, they use. So he says, you see the trouble that we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and his gates have been burned. It's a worthless city. He says, so come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. He says, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king has said to me. Here, he's, he's just recognizing. He's saying, hey, I know this is not from me. All right, this wasn't a me thing. This wasn't a King Artaxerxes thing. This was completely, totally a God thing. On the day that I should have died because I made that mistake of, of being unhappy in the king's presence, I should have died. Instead, here I am rebuilding this wall. This is definitely a God thing. And he says, so they said, he says, let's start rebuilding. And their, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. So the Jews are pumped, right? They're ready to go. They're like, oh, dude, the king gave you this. God's on our side. All right, the, Nehemiah, you're here. He's, they're just like, this is great. Right? This is like the best news that they could ever hear. They're pumped about it. But when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and they despised us. And they said, what is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so here Nehemiah introduces us to a few guys. If you actually look on a map, it's interesting because these guys are literally their territories. Like these are important guys of the region. But their territories are all over, like all around Israel. So to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. I mean, these guys own all around. So Israel, Jerusalem is literally surrounded by these guys. And these guys start mocking them, right? They're like, what are you doing? Are you re rebuilding this wall, all right? Because you're planning on rebelling against King Artaxerxes, right? It says, I gave them this reply, Nehemiah says. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. He's like, it's not me. It's not the king. It's God. And we, his servants, we will start building, but you have no share or right or historic claim in Jerusalem. He's like, you're not a Jew. All right, you have nothing to do with us. All right, this isn't some political thing where, you know, this is, this is a God thing. And so you got these two groups of people, right? So the Jews are pumped. Um, the surrounding people are not. And Nehemiah, he, he tells them, hey, we're going to do this anyway. And so he organizes these people into groups, his people into groups. And there's all these piles, like mountains of rubble everywhere. And they start building this wall. And things begin great. I mean, think about it. King's giving them permission. God's with them. Nehemiah is there. The people rally behind him to do God's work. Jerusalem's excited. Progress is finally being made on something that, that hasn't been made for maybe, you know, at this point, maybe 80, 85, 90 years. And, uh, and everything's, everything's going well. Is that how it is in your life sometimes? I know that is, that's how it is in my life sometimes where I'm just like looking around. I'm like, dude, life's good. I don't have any issues. I got a good family, got a good job. All right, I, like, I like what I'm doing. All right, got a good house, got good friends. Like, like I'm just, you know, you ever think to yourself, where you're just like, man, things are just good. Like, I, I have no complaints right now. And you know what always happens? Something bad always happens, right? Isn't that what happens in our life? All right, something just kind of creeps itself in there and you're just like, ugh, why did this have to happen? That's exactly what happens here. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 says, When Sam Ballot, I like that name, when Sam Ballot, 
heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. All right, so this guy is ticked. And so he mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. And he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Right? He says, he says what, are, what do they think they're doing? And actually, the word here, pathetic, I think could be better translated, and a lot of translations use this other word. I think it, I think it makes sense better is the word feeble, right? Like, what are these feeble, weak, pathetic Jews doing? When, when I hear the word feeble, I don't know why, I just always think back to uh, an event, something in my childhood. But I remember one time being a kid, and we found this, like, little kitten, and, um, and that, that was, like, sick. It couldn't walk straight. By the way, this is not the cat that we put in the bucket. I know some of you guys, this is a different cat. That cat was healthy because I took care of it. This cat we just found. All right, this cat was sick, and it couldn't walk right. I, 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 this image is burned in my head where the cat's, like, like walking, you know, like, it's trying to walk straight, but it's, like, it's like shaking. And anyway, it was a sick messed up cat. And so, you know, for us as like kids, me and my friend were like, dude, you know, we're going to take this cat. We're going to take care of this cat. We, we got some blankets and towels. We put the cat in there and put him in a box. And, and he died that night because he was so feeble. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, anyway, that's like, you know, that's what I think of feeble, like a little puny, weak kitten that can't walk straight. That's what they're calling the Jews here, right? They're like, they're like, you feeble, weak, pathetic Jews. You guys aren't strong enough to do this work. There's not enough of you guys to do this work. And they're like, can they restore it by themselves? Are you kidding me? They're all laughing to each other. He says, will they offer sacrifices? Will they even ever finish it? They'll never finish that wall. Are you kidding me? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Uh, you know, they're all laughing to each other. And then Tobiah the Ammonite. You ever know that guy who thinks he's super funny, but he's not funny at all? cracking jokes, and you're like, good one. Um, when I was in high school, I remember I went to Fremont Ross, and um, I went to a Port Clinton. I had a buddy of mine who went to Port Clinton, and we went to a basketball th- game there, and I don't even remember who they were playing or anything like that. But I remember walking in, and I had my letter jacket on. You guys know how it was with my letter jacket, so I'm like chest out, you know, standing tall, as tall as I can. <laughs> and uh, and so I walk in, and I sit down in the bleachers. I'm with my buddy, and, and everything's going good. And then this dude, this, like, 35-year-old child um, walks in, and he sits down behind me. And he's just like, Fremont? Are you kidding me? We need Fremont. We're not even playing Fremont. Hey, you need to go home. You know, all this stuff. And this guy's, like, old. Like, I'm 16. This guy's, like, 35. You know, people like that where it's like, hey, grow up. Get a job. Get out of your mom's basement. Like, you know, you got some things to work on. Don't worry about me and where I'm from. And, uh, and this guy, one thing he kept saying, he kept saying, Fremont sauce, instead of Ross. Like, that was funny. You know, it was like, Fremont sauce, you guys, you know, you get, and like, and I was just like, you are stupid. You know, this guy's an idiot. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be saying that as a pastor. I don't know. But I still think that, all right? The guy was just an idiot. Um, and I remember, you know, I'm just like, I'm just like, dude, this guy, his jokes are, like, not even close to funny. Like, that's the best you could come up with, sauce, because it rhymes with Ross. That's what this guy's doing, this Tobiah, all right? You know people like that, unfortunately. We all probably do. It says, then Tobiah the Ammonite, he says, who was beside him? So he's by, beside Sam Ballet. He says, yeah, indeed. Even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. Right, so they're making fun of this wall, and he's like, even if a fox just jumped on their wall, that wall would come crumbling down. Ha, 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 they all joke. It's not even a funny joke. Like, it's, you know, like, get a little more creative than that. But they're just mocking them. 
All right, they're making fun of him. They're doing it where everybody can hear. Everybody is listening. All the people, all the men working on this wall, they can all hear what's going on. And so, men, what I just want to remind you today, what I want you to understand is that if you are living the way that God calls you to live, I promise you 100%, no doubts in my mind, that you will experience opposition. All right, you get that? All right, you will experience opposition. The world will be against you. If you're living the life that God has called you to live, the world will be against you. Jesus promises us that. All right, that's, that's straight from Jesus. Too many men in our churches, it's like when they face just a little opposition in their life, they just back off. All right, they back down. But check out Nehemiah's response in verse 6. He says, so we, so these guys are chattering behind, you know, those types of people. They're, they're making fun of them. And says, so this is what we did. We rebuilt that wall. Right? Really, in the original language, this is, like, this is like in defiance to them. It's like they're telling us no. They're telling us not to. They're telling us we can't do it. They're telling us we're not strong enough to do it. They're telling us we're too weak. They're calling us feeble. They're calling us pathetic. All right, they're saying this. They're saying that. You say, so you know what we did? So we rebuilt that wall. We did exactly what God had called us to do, even though we faced opposition right in their face. And so we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half of its height, for the people had the will to keep working. So Nehemiah's like, so we went at it. We didn't let it stop us. All right, we didn't let it distract us. We didn't let the opposition rule over us. He's saying, so we started filling in the gaps. We started building this thing, and we got, it, we got the gaps all filled in around the entire city. We got it to half of its height. He's saying, hey, no, no, we kept going, right? They kept fighting. They kept moving forward, even though they were a small group, even though they were surrounded by people who hated them, people who literally wanted them dead, even though their lives were being threatened and their families' lives were being threatened, they continued to do the work that God had called them to do. Next verse it says, When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, all these different people, heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing, that Nehemiah and the guys did not stop, and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. All right? You notice the pattern here? They're always ticked off about something. All right? It says, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw it into confusion. All right? They're like, Let's just go wipe these people out. And so this is what they do. It says, So we prayed to our God. And we stationed a guard because of them day and night. Notice what they did here first. They went to God. The first thing that they do when they face this opposition, all right, this real opposition, is they, they pray. He's saying, first we prayed to God, but then they took action. Then they stationed a guard because of them day and night. They took action. See, too many of us men, you know what we do? All right, we do only one or the other, all right? Too many of us, we pray, and then we don't take action, or we take action, and we forget to pray. All right, Nehemiah here, not only does he do both, he prays and he takes action, but he does it in the right order. He goes to God first, he prays first, and then he takes action. And so he divides the workers up. He's got half of the workers guarding the city now, and he's got half of the workers um, working on the wall. He says everyone has a sword. Actually, he paints this picture. He says, yeah, you know, some of the guys, the guys who are working, right, they have their tool in one hand. They got a spear in another because they are ready for this fight, right? They're not going to back down. But we see that the workers, right, that, that, that this, this opposition, right, what's going on around them, it starts to wear on them. It starts to kind of wear them down. That's what opposition does to us. 
Right? This is what it does. Um, and so these guys, they're, they're kind of worried about two different things. Number one, they start worrying about their families. They start worried about their families' lives as well as their lives. Uh, but the other thing is that they're looking at this pile of rubble, these mountains of rubble that has been there for almost 100 years. And they're like, there's just too much work here. Now, this is just too much to, to build this wall. And as the wall gets higher, it gets harder to build and all this stuff. And just, they just start to doubt. They got this opposition in their life. They're starting to doubt. They don't know if they'll ever, they're like, you know, there's not many of us. Now we're only half of us are working because the other half, they have to stand guard. And they're like, they're like, I don't even know if this is possible. And so in verse 13, check out what Nehemiah does. It says, so I stationed the people behind the lowest sections of the wall. And at the vulnerable areas. And I stationed them by families with their swords and spears and bows. So these guys are ready. They're armed to the teeth. He says, after I made an inspection. Right? It says, after I, I went around and he inspected the wall. He's inspecting, inspecting the progress. But he's not just inspecting those things. He's also inspecting the men. Right? He's, he's, he's checking out their morale. He's seeing what's going on here. What, what needs to change? What, you know, are they getting low? And he says, so I stood up. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the first thing I said was, don't be afraid of them. He's saying, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of what they think. Don't be afraid of what they will do. Don't let fear stop you from doing your work. Right? That's our issue as men, okay? A lot of us, that's exactly what we do. We let we let fear stop us from doing our work, and we understand what our work is, right? We've talked about this the last, you know, last few weeks or last few months, is that our work, number one, is to do whatever we possibly can, is to reach as many people as we possibly can for Jesus, all right? That's why we are here. That's the work that Jesus has given us. But as men, specifically, we, are also, we also have work. We are to lead our families well. We're supposed to raise our kids well. We are supposed to be good husbands to our wives, but too many of us, we face just a little bit of opposition, and we're still like, we just break. We just come crumbling down. By the way, opposition a lot of times is subtle, okay? It's not something like what Nehemiah is dealing here, where it's obvious, you know, they got armies coming against them. Um, it's not always like blatant opposition. You know, for me personally, as I like look around, and one of the things I think our church, our church may struggle with the most um, there's a lot of people who I consider as generally spiritually mature believers, right? And spiritually mature parents, but their kids don't come to church. How about your kids are at home? And I'm not talking about kids who, who moved away and grown up. And, you know, I'm talking about kids who live in, who live in their house. All right, parents, especially you dads out there. Let me just throw this out there. Let me just remind you, you already know this. You got 18 to 20 years with your kids. Right? You got 18 to 20 years to pour into your kids on a daily basis and to pour into, by the way, also their relationship with Jesus. Like that should be your most important thing. And then it's over. You don't get that back. It's done. And too many dads out there face just a little bit of opposition. And we think to ourselves, we're like, well, you know, I tried. So I'm, I'm a good person still. You know, I tried to be a good dad. I tried to get them to church, but they don't want to go. You know, it's stuff like that. And, and you know, the opposition might come in different forms. It's like, well, the kid, kids don't want to wake up. Or, or maybe it's sports. Sports is huge. I, I'm all about sports. My kids will play sports. But church has to come first. All right, not sports. Or maybe it's your own pride. 
and you reason with yourself because you don't want to talk to your kids about spiritual things because you don't feel like you know enough or it's just awkward. That's not the image that you want or whatever it might be. And we start reasoning with ourselves, you know, we, to make ourselves feel better. We're like, well, you know, I don't want to push them into anything or, you know, I don't want to hurt our relationship. You know what that is? That's fear. It's exactly what Nehemiah is talking about here. That's fear. And the enemy uses fear. We let fear stop us from our work. We let fear stop us from leading the way that God has called us to leave. That's how the enemy works. And Nehemiah recognizes this. So he says, don't fear them. Don't let fear stand in the way. And the last part of this last verse, he says, this is what you need to do. Instead of letting fear influence the way that you work, he says, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. He's like, remember who you're working for. He's God, remember who's on your side when you're living life right and you fight for your countrymen and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. He says, don't fear them. You, instead of fear, you keep focused on God and you continue to fight. You continue to progress. You continue to do your work. By the way, notice what he's not saying here. He's not saying, hey, you fight for your new car, fight for your nice house, your 401k, your job, your reputation, you know, your pride, all right, your rights, all right, whatever, you know, all those things that the world tells us that we should be fighting for. That's not what Nehemiah is saying fight for here, all right? He's saying, you know, don't fight for yourself and don't fight for your stuff. What he calls us to do, especially as men, is to fight for What's right and to fight for others. See, we fight through opposition as we are living life right. Not for ourselves, not for our stuff. That's what boys do. That's what my three and five-year-old sons do. That's a boy thing. He said, no, we fight for our brothers, our sons, our daughters, and our wives. See, that's why a God follower fights. And I wish we could tell the rest of the story, but basically in the end, Nehemiah and the Jews, they face even more opposition, but they eventually finish the, the job. And for us, it's such a great example for all of us in here, man or woman, but especially for us men. And basically it boils down to this, right? He's saying, hey, when we live life right, like this is what God wants for you this morning. This is what God wants you to understand, especially you men out there. And that's when you live life right, guarantee it, you will face opposition. And, and the first thing that you need to do when you face opposition is the first thing you need to go to God. But then don't forget to take action. Fear doesn't hold us back. Not real men, not the men that God has called us to be. And because fear doesn't hold us back, because we remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord, and we fight not for our stuff, not for our pride, not for our rights. We fight for our brothers, our sons, our daughters, and our wives. That is how the Christian man is supposed to live his life. Let's pray. God, we... um, Thank you for the story, and I know we didn't do it justice today, but, uh, but God, thank you for reminding us that you have called us to work and that you have called us to fight for what's right. I mean, and that's what you've told us to do, and, and God, help us to be bold enough to do that. Help us to look towards you, help fear not to control us, and help us to always take action. Lord, we thank you for this, and we thank you for this church that we can come here, a place where men can come and learn about you and learn how to be a man. And God, we thank you for this. And 
We pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.